Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. It's very important to remember or to be aware of a book's genre when we're reading or studying or preaching the Bible. The book of Genesis is not wisdom literature. Uh, it's not instruction per se. We're not free, in other words, to moralize the story of Joseph. And almost inevitably, this is what happens, or what we're familiar with when it comes to his story. But the point of this text, or of Joseph's story in the narrative, is not morality. It's not here to show us, for example, how to overcome temptation. He's not here to show us a model Israelite. He's not here to teach us about sexual purity. The point of the passage is not to teach us, for example, what kind of women uh, to avoid as Christian men, etc., etc. One commentator said, the point of this text was that, and I quote, dedication to the calling of God will enable the servant of God to resist temptation. Now, we tend to teach um, the Old Testament in particular like that. Making people grow up in the church thinking that the point of all scripture is morality, behavior. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read something to you. I just saw this about 15 minutes before I came out tonight. No kidding. I was read, I was, I post, uh, you know, the bulletin thing on Facebook kind of before the evening service and so I'll, sometimes it just gets stuck and you're scrolling before you know it, you've wasted an inordinate amount of time. This was posted by, a, by a, a, a guy, a personality called Coach Tim. Somebody shared this. But I want you to listen to this, okay? And I want you to tell me if, if it, I, know, I know the sentiment sounds very nice. I just, I want you to listen. It doesn't matter how many Sundays you sit in church or if you think you are saved. So what are we talking about? Whether or not you're saved, right? God sees what you do. And how you treat people. That's what really matters. Yeah, it, it's, it's infuriating to me. Does it matter how you treat people? Oh, absolutely it matters how you treat people. But that's what really, that's what determines whether or not you're saved. Do you, like, do we understand how massive of an issue this is for what people think it means to be saved? Or what saves. Or, or, or like if, if that's the kind of thing we're teaching our children usually. They grow up thinking that being saved is a matter of what you do. And how you treat people, for example. And so when that kind of idea about what we are is, is, uh, poisons how we, every text we come to serves that purpose. How you do, how you behave. And so, no wonder so many people abandon the church. Generally speaking, if we're honest, the people that stay in church are the people where church is a part of their lives. It's a part of their culture as a person. We lose people, by and large, the older they get. If we're honest about it, we just don't want to face up to it. We People grow up in the church thinking that it's about rules because of things like this. And... and People do one of two things. Either they realize they aren't good at keeping rules, 
And so they think, well, Christianity is not for me. And they bail or they become little Pharisees because they think they can obey all the rules and they're a good person and they do the best they can. And so it's it's a problem that's just perpetuated. I know the person that shared this. I know they're a believer. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm just saying that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. What? It's a massive problem, and it's hard for us to see that it's a massive problem because morality is such a good thing. And so it's, it's very hard to point out the trouble with moralizing Scripture when it would be really nice if people were more well-behaved and kind to one another. I don't dispute that for a second. I'm just saying nobody's getting out of here alive. We're going to face the living God. So we better be clear about what saves and not muddy the water like this. It's a massive problem. It drives me insane. And it doesn't drive me insane because I'm more holy and more virtuous and I see things more clearly and I, I, I don't. It, it just, I just think, what are we selling here? What, and, and, and this story in Joseph is the primary example of, of the ways we can just use scripture to push morals and morals aren't saving anybody. All right? They're, they're not saving anybody. It's absurd that we still think like this. This isn't laid out in the text, by the way, this idea that dedication to the calling of God, where where is that, enables God's servant to resist temptation. That's not there. That's not what we see in the text. As John Walton said, no clear model of that is presented. There are no exhortations or statements of approval from the narrator urging us to go and do likewise here. We don't see that. That's been created. It's been it's eisegesis rather than exegesis. It's been imported onto the text, shoved into the text. That's not the way we want to read the Bible. We want the text to tell us what it means, not vice versa, ever, ever. When Joseph's story began back in 37-2 with the words, these are the generations in Genesis, the toldot of Jacob, the author is telling us this is a narrative that is meant to be read like the previous narratives in Genesis. It's redemptive history. Redemptive history. This is the 10th narrative in Genesis. It's the final link in the chain from the first humans to the patriarchs to Israel in Egypt at the end of the book. Interestingly, none of the characters in this chapter use the name of Yahweh. You know that you're seeing that when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible. I think the CSB uses Yahweh, but most Bibles translate it Lord in all capital letters. Only the narrator uses that name here, right? That is how you and I know as we read that Joseph is never really alone. We don't know how Joseph, per se, was interpreting what was happening to him quite yet. We don't really know that. And so often, beloved, think about it, that's exactly how it is with us, right? We we don't really see the presence of God in our lives all the time, and especially not in the ups and downs, the mediocrity, the mundane aspect of everyday life. And it's even more true when we face true adversity, right? The, to, to, to believe and to know, to feel even, if we could say that, the presence of God. The narrator wanted to show Israel, remember, that's his audience, to show Israel that the Lord was with Joseph during his rise and fall in Potiphar's house, God was with them in times of prosperity and in times of adversity. And beloved, don't forget the one orchestrating the events of this story. 
Don't forget him. Two wills are at work in the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers. And now we could say here, the will of the Egyptians, the will of Potiphar's wife and Potiphar, etc. And then the will of the sovereign Lord. And we need to remember, this is always the case in our lives. Always. There are people that have a will for us and what they want from us and want to make us do or expect of us. And our will and the will of forces we can't even control and government and authorities. And then there's the will of Almighty God who is sovereign in our lives. These two things are always working at the same time. And only one is going to win. Many may be against us. But there is more that are with us than are with them. For God is with us always. Even when we're sure we've been abandoned or forgotten or discarded. And it feels like we're just hurtling aimlessly through space and time, right? God is with us in times of adversity and in times of prosperity because He loves us. He loves us. Remember, God is never obligated to be with us. Why would He do it? He loves us. Everything in our lives happens in the presence and under the rule of our sovereign God, under the wings of His gracious, unmerited love for us. So let's pray. Father, please help me speak clearly. Let my words come like the rain on tender shoots tonight. Father, I pray that I would speak Your Word for Your sake and You would cut through my doubt and my self-centeredness and our doubt and our tendency to question or doubt what we hear from your word. Lord, help us, Father. Help us see clearly. Help us believe. Help me preach. Help everyone listen and understand. And may I speak in such a way that I don't hinder it. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. This basically repeats 37, 36. If you remember, chapter 39 picks back up the story that began in chapter 37. Because of Jacob's favoritism of Joseph and Joseph's foolish arrogance and sharing with his brothers the dreams he was having about ruling them, his brothers hated him so much they wanted to kill him. Judah, who we just read about in 38, convinced them to sell him to a caravan instead of Ishmaelite traders headed down to Egypt. And now that's where Joseph is in Egypt, very far from the promised land. Whatever dreams he was having then are shattered now. You can imagine, I I would figure, at least to some extent, he's a slave in a foreign land. And not just any common slave, but a slave of an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. The narrator will tell us, That Joseph's master is an Egyptian, as if we're going to forget, three times in this passage. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 5. Think of the narrator's audience. Think of who he's writing to. The Israelites had been enslaved to Egyptian masters. They remembered every time they heard that, how far they had once fallen. Once prosperous in the land of Goshen, under the protection and favor of friendly pharaohs, to being enslaved by Egyptian masters who ordered their babies to be drowned in the Nile River. Think think about how far Joseph had 
fallen. He was his father's favorite, the designated heir, couldn't be going better for him. Now he's a slave in the land of Egypt, away from the promised land. But verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Nothing we know at this point about Joseph's success of being the designated heir. We, we don't know of anything about him that is the reason for him having that designation. He just has it. His father just loves him probably because of who his mother was. So here, we'll, we'll hear that, by the way, four times in this passage. When you read narrative texts, watch for the repeats. That will help you understand what the, the, the author's driving at, what the point of the passage may be. We'll hear that four times in this passage. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, verse 23. The Lord was with Joseph. That's an author's way of telling you what he's trying to talk about. The point he's trying to make. God was with Joseph even in the lowest places he would ever be. But ponder the question, did Joseph know that? Did Joseph believe that? Because it's not coming from him. The narrator has insight that Joseph didn't have. Every bastion of human support in Joseph's life was gone. His brothers hated him. They'd sold him into slavery. His dad thinks he's dead. He's far from home. He has no resources, no recourse whatsoever for what's happened to him. And he's a slave. And yet we read the Lord was with him. No matter where he went, no matter where he was or how he had gotten there, no matter what he had or didn't have, God stays with him. The, the, the presence of God is not confined. Beloved, I, I hate it. I hate telling kids we, we, that we kicked God out of schools. Like now he's not there. And they're there alone. That's not the way the presence of God works. Man-made laws don't kick God out of anything. Right? He's omnipresent. Remember? He's still at the school. He's here. He's at your home. He's at, I mean, it's, that's not the way God's presence works because when, when we say these things, what, what we do is make people think the fight is something other than what it is. And so now school kids, they have to fight to get God back in school. God never left school. God doesn't leave places unless he says, I left there. God's presence is not always dramatic. It's not always spectacular. You can't always know that it's there by what you're seeing, but it's constant. It's always there. As a result of that, remember, Joseph becomes a successful man in Egypt. We hear that three times in this text, that God made Joseph's work successful. Right? That's how Joseph is successful. God made his work successful. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 23. So we're reminded throughout the story that it wasn't Joseph's innate wisdom or ability that God is working with, and through that he becomes successful because he had he was doing his part, he had something to put in. We read that God made whatever the man did successful. That's precisely why Joseph is successful, and the only reason we have for it in the text, the Lord was with him. Now, it's very easy to evaluate slavery from the outside. I mean, slavery would have been awful no matter what state of it you were in, especially at this time, but he wasn't just any slave, like he had no pathway to advance. He was a slave in Potiphar's house, which brought with it a certain 
opportunity for advancement if he did well. Pick it up in verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So Joseph becomes basically the personal assistant to Potiphar and the chief overseer of his entire household. He's literally in charge of all his possessions. Verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. That is an initial fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham from 12.3. Don't miss that. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed by the very presence of Joseph in Potiphar's house, just by Joseph being there, a Hebrew, all that he had, Potiphar had in house and in field was blessed. That's a Gentile's house. It's another nation. All that God has promised, beloved, is being overseen. Even down in Egypt with a man that may have no idea whether or not God even remembers that he exists. God's promise is being fulfilled. And now we know in Christ has been fulfilled. These stories are doing So much more than teaching morals. These are the echoes of the future, so to speak, in Scripture. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Galatians 3, 13 and 14, as it now has in full. This is a precursor of this. Way back with Joseph and Potiphar, verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him... He had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. All right. It's good to know. Does food here, so so it begs the question, does food here relate literally to the actual food Potiphar ate and Joseph was not in charge of that because maybe the ritual differences between Hebrews and Egyptians, it very well could be, or... Just given the context, could it be an idiom for his Potiphar's private affairs, if you will, which it could be. It might refer to his wife, which I'm not saying that's not demeaning. I'm saying it could refer to his wife in context because of what we read next and what we read later in verse 9. When when Joseph says later, the only thing that I've been kept back from having charge over is you, and here it's food, he's not contradicting himself. So maybe it's that, you know, that's how it was Scene, But for no reason whatsoever, we think out of nowhere, we're given here at this point, the small but not unimportant detail that old Joseph was easy on the eyes for the ladies. Right. So he's probably Italian. But anyway, Joseph is the only man in Scripture, the only man in Scripture that's described as handsome in form and appearance. It's very interesting. His his mother, Rachel, also very interesting, was described as having a lovely figure and a beautiful face back in 2917. These are the only two people in the Old Testament to be given a double description of how attractive they were. Right? That's very interesting here. That makes me think back to the brothers who hated him. Joseph had it all. He was even good looking. Right? I mean, he just, you can imagine those other brothers and, and here it, but if, if you'll notice, he was a slave. Like It was no advantage for him at all. It wasn't getting him all the breaks. It, it looked like it was going to. Now it's almost a disadvantage because 
Because of that, he attracts the attention of literally the worst possible person for the situation that he's in for that sort of thing. Look at verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Notice she commands it. He's a slave in her house. The temptation here then was probably an assault on Joseph's senses because for one thing, I mean, you can assume the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's house hadn't married down. So she's probably a very pretty lady, at least culturally speaking. So there's that, but also because this was his master's wife and sexual promiscuity was a common feature in all societies that had slaves. That was unfortunately part of how people were used in a culture like that. And so Joseph might have been just another one of many. We can't know for sure. So why not obey his master's wife? For one thing, he's probably not going to get in trouble for it, right? Because that was part of the cultural reality of slavery. But also, he could claim it as a defense later, you know, that he was ordered by her to do this. If the master comes to him and is angry about it, well, she, I was a slave and she told me I had to do it. What was I supposed to do? Joseph might even be able to use that then to advance himself, but why refuse it would be the question. But instead we read the only time Joseph speaks in the whole chapter when we pick up verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph tells her no for three reasons. First, his master has put everything he has in Joseph's hands. Joseph can't betray that kind of confidence in him. Secondly, his master hasn't kept anything from him except her, his wife. To obey her would be to disobey his master. But lastly... This great wickedness against his master would be a sin against God. Now, that's very interesting. How did Joseph know? Think about it. They have no Bible. The law has not been written. How did he know that was a sin against God? I, I think what we may be seeing here is that, yes, it's been tainted by the fall, but the image of God, the law is written on the human heart from the word go. We know right from wrong, at least generally speaking. So, He tells her no, but she won't let up. Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. He's doing his best to avoid this woman. But then the opportunity for her finally presents itself. Sin is indeed always crouching at the door. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. All he can do is run away. I mean, what what else can he do here? He can't fight her. She's a woman. She's his master's wife. All he can do is flee. Well, now he's fled away. She's compromised. That's not the reaction you want. The slave flees. Joseph can report her. So she comes up with a plan. There's a lot of that in Genesis. The scheming, it never works out well. So we're seeing it again here. Pick it up in verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. My pages are stuck together. 
And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she stacks up her potential witnesses, twists the facts, then she plays the quintessential damsel in distress. This ruffian came into the house, Joseph the Hebrew, disrobed because he was going to sexually assault me, but then when I bravely fought him off, he ran away and he left his garment here. It's evidence, verse 16. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She wants Potiphar to see the evidence, see the crime scene when he gets home. Earlier, Joseph's blood-stained robe was used to falsely say he was dead, right? Now, his torn garment, his garment is used to falsely say he had tried to sexually assault Potiphar's wife. It's not going very well for Joseph, no matter what he does. But remember, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Does it look like that the whole time? No, it rarely looks like that. It rarely looks like the Lord is with him. It's not all, in other words, just perfect and peachy and everything is well because the Lord is with him. Sometimes it's horrible and he's a victim, a helpless victim. Sometimes that's what it's like when the Lord is with him. Potiphar comes home, verse 17, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. To be um, sexually assaulted by a man was bad enough, but to, but to be attacked by a Hebrew slave... She's going for maximum effect. She's painting him as despicably as she can. And so judgment, of course, should be swift and terrible. Potiphar has been betrayed by his most trusted servant. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. So... To possibly add insult to injury here, it's very interesting that Potiphar has him thrown in prison rather than executed. Even attempted rape in Egypt in this period was punishable by death. Even attempted rape. It could be that Potiphar doesn't even believe his wife. He knows Joseph is innocent. It could be that. And he's furious because he knows he has to save face because of his wife. So either way, he's going to lose his best servant. And they probably didn't grow on trees, I would assume. So he has him thrown in prison rather than executed. Either way, Joseph has went from a pit to slavery to imprisonment after receiving the royal robe from his father. It's all been downhill ever since the best moment of his life. Note all the injustice here. Joseph refuses the advance of Potiphar's wife. He does the right thing. He rejects evil. He follows God's law before it's even written. And he's the one in the story who ends up in prison like a criminal. Right? If you put God first in your life, everything will go well. Really? I mean, tell that to Joseph. Right? Tell it to Job. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Paul. It's, it's, why do we think things like this? 
How you behave is all that really matters. I hope not. Do you know what's behind a statement like that? You think you'll behave well enough to get in. Like that, that's what we're saying. It's, it's what you really do that matters. Who wants to lay that on the scale? Don't look at me through the blood of Jesus. Look at me through what I did, because that's what really matters. Here's all my good works. The Bible doesn't pilfer that idea that if you do right, it will go well. No, no, no. Not, not remotely. In fact, that's, that's the big narrative hook in the Bible. That's the great irony is that Jesus Christ suffers horribly. Everybody before him is just a foreshadowing of the fact that in this world, the faithful suffer for their faithfulness. Joseph, we don't even know why God is with him. He's just with him. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph. Where? In prison. The Lord was with Joseph when he prospered in Potiphar's house. He was with him when he was stuck in the bottom of a pit. He was with him when he was falsely accused. He was with him when he avoided the death penalty. The Lord was with him when he was prospering and when he was experiencing adversity. And showed him steadfast love. We are discovering through the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife that the love of the Lord is the reason for the presence of the Lord. So it's not math. His presence is not payment. It's love and it's unearned love. Remember. But such is the way of our Lord who gave Joseph favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. Do you know what that is? That's Grace. The Lord is with him. As a result, in verse 22, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And and, and again, that's great. That's an amazing thing, but it's prison. (laughs) It's still prison. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Why does everything end up going right for Joseph? Because God is with him. Which means the point of the story is not the moral fortitude of Joseph. The point of the story is the ongoing, abiding, never ceasing presence of the Lord who continues to give this man favor. The text never attributes Joseph's success to his wisdom or ingenuity or hard work. We are not meant to conclude those things would be the reason for his successes, beloved. The repeated mantra is that the Lord is with him. The text tells us the reason, or that that's the reason for Joseph's prosperity. The Lord is with him because he loves him and therefore gives him favor. Joseph may or may not deserve the Lord's favor, but he always has it. The Lord was apparently we're finding with Joseph when his own arrogance contributed to his assault by his brothers. So the message of the story is loud and clear. God is with us in times of adversity and in times of prosperity because he loves us. 
you, you, every parent in here knows something of what this is like, right? You, you, let me talk to the dads just, just for a minute because I figure I can relate to them better than the moms and the, the wonderful privilege they have of carrying the child. But do you remember how much you loved that baby when you first heard she was pregnant? That you just loved this child. You didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. My wife, when, when she was, um, the way she let me know she was pregnant with Bella, she was at her, at her mom's, uh, with some friends and I guess had taken the test there. And so, um, she was talking to me on the phone and I hear all the other ladies in the house scream like the joy. And I'm like, what is going on? She's like, Oh, nothing. And well, what, uh, what had happened was they had saw the test, so they knew. She didn't tell me, but I got a card. Uh, I kept it. I have it somewhere, and I opened it up, and it's the it's the positive test, the little result from it. But she had to explain it to me because I had no idea what that was. <laughs> but 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 in that moment, this child has done nothing good or bad. You don't know if it's a boy or a girl. You're you're where where are you right there? Month one maybe. I, I however it. But this, this love that is just there. Right now, if we who are evil can love like this, and I mean that love, the love of a parent to a child is a different love, right? There's the love you have between spouses. There's the love you have for parents, for family, all those kinds of things. Puppy love, right? It's real to the puppy, right? I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, there's all, but so I think every love is, is probably unique. The love of a parent with a child is fierce. It's fierce, right? It's, it's, if, if you and I love like this and that love would cause us to do anything for these kids, even what may not be best for them sometimes, because you, you don't even know how to control it. Imagine the love of the father for you. Imagine it. Imagine what it's like. Like God knew. Before you were conceived that you would be there and loved you infinitely, infinitely. That's the reason for his presence, right? It's, it's, it's not like you've earned it or your skills have drawn its attention. He just loves and therefore is with us and guides us and watches over us. You remember the poem Footprints? But everybody in here knows that. I, I don't. I don't think the author is known. But why are there two sets of footprints? Foot footprints. Footprints when things are going well, when only one. When he's suffering, does one set of footprints mean God had abandoned him? Right. And you, my son, my precious child, I love you. I would never leave you during your times of trial and suffering. When you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Yes. That isn't that the story of Joseph. At all times, the Lord was with him. What we see in the text is that while the presence of the Lord in a person's life may not always be obvious, it always is. It's constant. It's there. The Lord was always with Joseph. And the Lord assured Israel through that, that he would always be with them on the mountaintops, in the valleys, literally, the valley of the shadow of death, they would write in Psalm 23. God assures his people of his presence through his word. If he has told you he will be with you, he will be with you. And you cannot doubt it. Now we will, of course we will. But we can't 
He's not lying to you. And when you blow it, he doesn't leave. Right? It's believing lies that keeps us from repenting. When we sin, it's believing in lies that keeps us feeling like God doesn't want anything to do with us. We've told that to ourselves. God hasn't told us that. God hasn't told us it's all transactional and you got to deposit good works in your daily account to get the presence of God relative to how well you did. That's why we believe those crazy things that like if I don't have my quiet time in the morning and I pop a tire on the way to work, I should have had my quiet time. He's not a child who's petulant. I'll show you not to have a quiet time. How would you like a pop tire? No, this is God. This is God. He's he's not like us. He doesn't stick out his lip, cross his arms, turn away from us. He's not like this. He's not like this. You say, well, doesn't he care about holiness and righteousness? Oh, more than you and I can imagine. Which is why he sent his son to satisfy that requirement. It's finished. Rest in that. The Lord was with Israel when they prospered in Goshen. Later when they were enslaved in Egypt. He was there the whole time. Why did he hear their cries as he told Moses? Because he was so close. He was with them when they prospered under King David and when they were in exile in Babylon. Saints like Mordecai, you know, he was with him. He was there with Esther and all that she was going through. You know what Esther had to go through? You know what that woman had to go through? God was with her in all of it. Few things are more important for us to take from the scriptures than the reality of God's presence in suffering. When you feel like he's not there. When when nothing you can see would make you think he's there. It was so important to the life and ministry of the Messiah in his pathway to become our acceptable sacrifice, that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You know, why was Jesus filled with grief? He was Jesus. He didn't know how it was going to go. Of course he did. You think that meant he didn't feel the moment appropriately? Like, just beloved, just because Jesus knew he was going to rise from the dead did not make death easy. Right? It, it, it's not the way the Bible... The Bible's not spiritual Prozac. Verses are not pills. I feel grief. Give me a grief verse. I feel better. No, I don't. That's not the way it works. I don't, I don't want you to think that's the way it works. That'd be great. Right? Because grief can be heavy. Right? And, and you just... You can feel the weight of the world, the weight of suffering, of sorrow, of adversity and trial, and you know... Those verses, like the back of your hand probably. Everybody in this room can probably quote Romans. For all things work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Does that verse fix it when you're miserable? No. I mean, it's it's there. I'm not insulting the Bible. Please don't hear that. I'm saying the Bible is telling you what life experience is. What it's like to live in this world. Jesus has proved that, that scripture, the truth doesn't work like Prozac. That's, it doesn't just make you feel better even while things have not changed. Right? That, that's, that's something medical that you can, there's pills for that. Right? Some legal, some illegal. 
right? I mean, the, people can drink themselves into that state where you feel better, but nothing has changed. The word of God is so much realer than this. It, it doesn't make a mockery of our pain, right? God doesn't do that. God is near. He's not cheapening pain. He's not cheapening suffering, disillusionment, guilt. He doesn't cheapen these things with here. Take two of these and call me in the morning. It's just his presence. I always feel so inadequate to be there in the hospital or something the minute someone dies. What do you say? What do you say? And and the, the Bible seems to describe presence as much more valuable than words. Right? The, the, the presence of the Lord is a promise of God's word. At some point we'll experience things in our lives for which there is no immediate comfort or source to settle us. That is when we simply have to cling to the truth that we know, right? Whether or not we can understand it, that, that Right, you're not required to feel better in the moment. Did you know that? Like, you're not required to jump up and down and laugh and scream with joy when someone you love dies. That's not required of you. It's not required of you when everything you hoped for, whether it was a, an acceptance to a college, a, a great job, a, a person you loved or wanted to be with, when all that comes crashing down... It's not required of you. It's not uniquely Christian to just, oh, well, that's the way the wind blows. The way the wind blows hurts your face. Right? What is required of us is to believe that we are not alone. I can believe that and weep at the same time. Right? And so some things are true in spite of how we feel about them. They're just true, like the constant presence of Emmanuel. What a beautiful name to be given to our Savior, God with us. Like that's the climax, the pinnacle of him coming to save us. He means God with us. That's his name. And this same Jesus assured his people of his unwavering presence before he did what? Before he left. Remember I am with you, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. That's why we don't have to question God's presence. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with a promise, a promise. Jesus is with us in times of adversity and suffering as much as he is with us in times of comfort and ease. So, We need to learn to train our minds with the promise that he is with us, right? I I think he he feels closer, maybe, although I I would debate that. Maybe he he, feels better because he feels closer when things are going well, and he feels further when things aren't going well. But have you ever thought, why do we think that? Why do we equate suffering with the absence of God? Maybe because we still don't, I would say, not wanting to oversimplify it, we, we still don't really believe the gospel, right? We, we feel like 
we have to put something in to actually get the blessing. And so the, the first place our mind goes in times of trouble is where are you? That's the first question we tend to ask. How could you let this happen? Where are you? Where, right? That, that's, that's what's so great about Job. His, his wife, the only, one of the only honest people in the Bible, curse God and die. Right? Why are you still holding to your integrity? And Job just proving Satan so wrong. Should we accept good from God and not evil? Beloved, that, see that line? That's bleach for our brain right there. I mean, he's with us. He's he's with us no matter what he's doing. Right? And sometimes what God is doing is difficult and heavy and causes adversity. Sometimes that's what God is doing. According to Genesis 50, 20, that's what he, he was working also in the life of Joseph. Right? Train your mind with the promise that he's with us even when he seems absent. The Bible never strays from this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, Again, the words, the grammar is huge. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. The Bible doesn't talk like you won't know those things if you're really faithful. No, what seems to be the norm is it's horribly difficult. And therefore there is the promise. Yeah, and I'm with you the whole time. And one day this will all end and I'll be there too. It's not even our faithfulness, really, that guarantees the presence of God. It's nothing from this side that secures it for us. It's always His covenant love for us. And since the presence of God is based primarily on His love and not our performance, we can always be confident of His presence. Always. We didn't earn it, therefore we can't lose it. God's presence is not payment for services rendered. His presence is grace for justifying righteousness that's been achieved by Jesus Christ. Again, our questioning usually starts with something like, where are you? How could you let this happen? Right? And I'm, I'm not demeaning that. I'm, I'm trying to validate it, really. Those are real questions. They're honest questions. Go ahead and ask them. His arms are strong. His shoulders are broad. He can take it. The more appropriate way to think that will actually guide us to the right and to the most comforting answers is if we would start with, why would you ever be with me in the first place? Now, it's not, the point is not self-deprecation. Right? The point is not to flog yourself with a whip because you're so evil. That's not the point. The point is reality. The reality is, is that I didn't merit the ongoing, loving, saving presence of God. If that's the case, then what we, when we start with who we are and with who God is, rather than with what we think we deserve, the answers we find will be so much better for our souls to remember oh, that's, that, that's right. God is present with me always because of his grace, because of his grace. What we deserve from God is not his abiding presence, but his condemning wrath. And yet he's decided unilaterally to love us. 
to love us enough to save us and to be with us, I never look to myself to find the proof that God is with me. Ever. It's no coincidence that every time you hear the Lord is with Joseph here, he's either a slave or he's been lied about or he's in prison. Right? And you see, well, he's causing everything to succeed. In prison. Right? It's, I'd much rather succeed not in prison than in prison. I'd rather be able to own a home and go about my day and be with my family and do the things I want to do other than know that God is with me when I'm eating pineapple upside down beans in the yard and about to get shanked by a guy that doesn't like me because of my haircut, right? I mean, the Lord is with him. He's succeeding in prison, in prison. I look only to the promise that he loves me and therefore he will be with me. That that's that's what we all need to train through the word, through prayer, to, to believe. Lord, keep me believing. Keep me believing. Keep me believing. Keep me believing. The presence of the Lord does not always mean I will have peace. But it does always mean that I am loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, keep us believing. Keep my brothers and my sisters believing. Keep me believing. Watch over our souls, God, in the days to come. We don't know what lies ahead. We really have no clue, but you are Lord of the present and the future as much as you are Lord of the past. And so there's nowhere we're about to go where you aren't there. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for Christ has purchased this for us. Christ makes the promise yes and amen for me. And so we thank you. We thank you. Watch over us, Father. Be with us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.